China pretty much owns the worldwide market for rare earth minerals. And without them, countless high-tech and electronics products wouldn't exist. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. There are 17 so-called rare earth minerals found in nature that have become an essential part of smartphones, electric cars, turbines, big screen TVs, medical equipment, military hardware, you name it. And while they aren't literally rare, high costs and environmental concerns prevent them from being mined in most parts of the world. That leaves China with a worldwide market share of around 80%. And it raises serious questions about how companies can be assured of a steady supply of the minerals, especially given growing trade tensions between China and the West. Today I'm speaking with Karai Kose, Senior Director with Gartner, about the availability or not of rare earth minerals today. Where can companies turn to for alternative supplies? Which countries, if any, are gearing up to challenge China's dominance in this area? What's the risk of not having access to rare earth minerals at all? And what kind of long-term strategies should supply chains be pursuing to guard against that happening? Here is my conversation with Karai Kose. Karai Kose, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bob. Appreciate the invitation. Karai, would you explain to our audience just what rare earth minerals are? Absolutely. Rare earth elements are a group of 17 chemical elements that occur together and often uh, displayed in a periodic table. Those elements are all metals and group is often also referred as rare earth metals or rare earth minerals, sometimes also as elements. They have very often similar properties and they can be found together in geologic deposits. Therefore, a mine can very often extract more than just one of those metals. They have very unique characteristics, therefore uh, being highly utilized in advanced technologies because some of them are magnetized at a very small scale with a high power and they're permanently magnetized and therefore very suitable for small electronics and high-tech devices, for example. How did China come to have a virtual, if not actual, monopoly on the mining and supplying of rare earth minerals? That's a very good question. So it started actually not even just recently. It started almost two and a half decades ago where the rare earth mineral production, rest of the world versus China, was in balance. With the production plans and expansion plans of China and also the internal demand for the Chinese production market, they have increased significantly the output by opening new mines and uh, increasing the output quotas, which then drove down the pricing. They also have influenced the market with a lower price point so that other supplies in markets outside of China became non-profitable and therefore squeezed out of the market. That extended to the time almost up to 2009, 2010, where we see more than 90-95% of the market being supplied by supplies from China. That was the initiation of then their leverage in the market and almost becoming a sole source. 
The irony, of course, is that rare earths are not actually literally rare. They can be found all over the world, but China seems to be the only country that stepped up with the necessary investment, risking the environmental factors and the problems with workers and the like, I guess, to be the only one that really is the main source of supply, right? That is true to some extent. I don't think they ever plan to risk life in that process, but it is a fact that one ton of rare earth elements produces 60,000 cubic meters of waste gas that contain hydrochloric acid, 200 cubic meters of acid containing sewage water, and almost one ton to one ton and a quarter of radioactive waste. So dealing with that sort of site product, toxic site product, is not an easy endeavor, especially when we talk about supplies available across the world. We're looking at supplies available in North America, in Australia, but also in southern parts of the African continent, as well as India. So some of the reasons I just mentioned have very high environmental and compliance rules, which require those mines to be investing a lot into waste management, environmental management, and therefore become non-competitive in a market where China just goes and produces vast amount of those products with very low price points, not necessarily looking into the factors such as environmental impact that closely as others. Given the fact that rare earths today are found in so many high-tech and electronics products, including the growing number of hybrid vehicles and electric vehicles and the like, what is the nature of the risk today to global supply chains, given the fact that China does have a monopoly on this supply? It comes in a couple of issues, I think. First, it is a geopolitical risk in regards to having a high dependency on market players such as China recently with the trade and tariff discussions or in many publications already called trade war and retaliatory tariffs, you see the highest risk associated with that. Retaliatory tariffs uh, hit very, very fast within the first quarter, and they are also highly impactful on your costing. Uh, We have seen the first showdown in 2010 to 2013, where we've seen spikes of price increases over 1,000% for some of them. And those, even though are subcomponents of maybe sub-assemblies you're purchasing in your supply chain, the impact with such an increase really replicates into your overall cost of material and goes into your margins pretty quickly and significantly to the extent that you become non-profitable if you are not able to mitigate those risks. The other risk is just purely the capacity risk. The demand for the products right now in the market and looking forward into 2020 to 2025, you see a scarcity of the product availability. Now that other mines have shut down, are non-viable, and companies have gone out of business, China is actually cutting down on their quota to the extent that they're reducing not only the output and limiting it to production caps at 140,000 tons, but also their melting and refining capacity, 200,000 tons. That is one third down from 2015. What that means is that we are already underwater with the demand of the future and the supply of the future. So we can expect a price increase. The good news there is that the price increase will help 
other companies to set up productions elsewhere and be competitive again. Yeah, it could serve as an incentive, but I thought that would have happened back around, as you mentioned, that the price soared around 2010, 2011. Was not China politically manipulating supplies of rare earth to certain parts of the world to make a political statement at that time? I understood that they were actually using it for that purpose. Politically, I can't comment on that. I can just look at it from the supply chain impact. And what the issue there was, was also with the World Trade Organization being in a dispute with China by providing a discrepancy in pricing for the internal market versus the external market. And that settled in end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And you could see the price really reduced to what would have been the price with a normal increase from 2010 to 2014, expected with the historic price increases there. Whereas still, I need to mention that that price point even back then and before the crisis was way too low to a supply chain with such an investment requirement on the environmental compliance side of things. So is it convenient as a tool to utilize a dependency as a leverage? I think in any contract it is. And it is fair to say that assumptions going towards political leverage utilizing these tariffs is part of the overall agenda. We might also expect that as China reorients production toward its own local domestic markets, which it has vowed to do in the decades ahead, that more of the rare earths mined in China will go toward products sold in China, making less available to the rest of the world. Leading to the question then, you, you mentioned the possibility of alternative supplies. Where are there legitimate alternative supplies right now, if anywhere? There are a few exploration projects, as I mentioned, in India as much as in southern parts of Africa, South Africa, and north of South Africa. There are mine explorations going on right now in Australia as well as in North America. Having said that, it needs to make sense that those mining operations are profitable and they are a long-term investment, a safe investment, and don't close with the volatility in the market to that extent. We can see that a reactivation of the mountain pass mine helped in the aftermath uh, when the price increase hit so much that actually the production of the rest of the world increased to the extent dropping down the dependency to China down to 85% from 95% in the peak. You saw there a reaction to the market, which is going to continue according to the supply scarcity and the demand increase for sure. In addition to that, there are a couple of companies outside of China and providing those rare earth minerals at a higher price point. And you can see in their customer portfolio already that big players in utilization of their supplies into their own products are their customers of choice. So my recommendation has been in my research also to really reach out to those sources outside of China and start your relationships even at a higher price point to create a less toxic dependency to one source only because the exposure there is just too high and movements there are very uncertain. You made reference to the mining site in Mountain Pass, California, which a few years ago was being managed by Molly Corp Minerals, which in turn had acquired it years earlier from Chevron Corp. Molly Corp went through some 
real bumps in the road, some environmental disasters and bankruptcy and the inability to really get production up and running to an acceptable level. And I, for all I know, I don't know, are they still even in business? What does that say about the viability of these alternative mines in the Western Hemisphere? Will they run up against environmental and cost consequences that will make them impossible to get off the ground? That's a very good point you're raising there. That's really what matters, right? If you want to have a viable source being there for your products, which go lifetime, maybe six to 10 years, then you want to make sure that you have the supply for those products stable enough. The difficulties you're referring to are part of the model China has been putting into the market to dominate it to the extent that squeezing out other players have shown cross-benefits for China. One, they were able to take that empty space and throw in the product and didn't give others the chance to follow. I would think that, for example, a mine in India would equally be able to go online and produce at a comparable price point, given a very similar look at environmental challenges. Uh, very different, though, from what we look at, let's say, in uh, North America, in Europe. So that didn't happen because China was much more agile to put in their foot and claim the left territories. Now, when we talk about other opportunities, we look at companies like, for example, NEO or uh, Liner, Medallion Resources, and so on. And you see those being also more and more on the radar for investment banks when they talk about stock investment. So having that correlation of data, it just makes sense to look at those companies as well as a viable source, since if the financial industry looks at those investments as promising in the future, then there is enough, I would say, confidence behind that those investments are more viable. I wonder if one thing that might finally kick off production in the Western Hemisphere, and more specifically the United States, is the heavy dependence mm -hmm. of the U.S. military on rare earth minerals for their various weapons and systems and the like and their technology. Might that lead right. to a declaration of national security that virtually mandates a supply of rare earth minerals from the West? The mandate can act as far as the minerals are even available. There's one specific mineral which is hard to come by, which is terbium, and that is used in, for example, missiles and rocket systems. And right now that is only really sourced out of the mine in Mongo northern China from their Mongolian region and the mine there. So will it be a necessity to look for other options in case this dispute continues? I would say yes, but the other question is, Will the dispute continue or does it need to settle at some point? Because we don't look at just one aspect of a relationship there. Rare earth minerals would not necessarily win or lose a whole debate over who is now the powerhouse economically. There are much more complex dynamics geopolitically and also within the import and export supply chain between China and, let's say, the U.S. and North American market outside of rare earth minerals. So it is a player in the whole mix, but it's not by itself defining to that extent. 
So again, if we could just come up with some recommendations for companies. You mentioned that they should start exploring alternatives, although at the same time, such alternatives are not necessarily existing at the moment. So I'm not sure how much they can do in that way. What other steps can companies do to mitigate the risk of the unavailability or the inadequacy of rare earth materials that are absolutely essential to their products? I will go back to my point again. Like, uh, for example, companies like Linus have taken rare earth deposits in Australia right now. So it is important to really make sure, first of all, that your current supply is secured. Look for your commitments on paper and turn them into true commitments on your purchase orders and your exchanges with your suppliers, regardless if they're in China or outside. Make those commitments to them and try to be fair and to some extent even favorable to them in the way you work with them to give yourself 6 to 12 months time frame where you absolutely have secured your supply. The other thing also is get your supply early. Yes, there is a warehousing cost, there is a capital bound cost, but all of that cost will be most likely much less than a spike in pricing and the scarcity of supply, which may stop even your production lines. So make that trade-off decision there now before you even engage in further explorations. Now, once you have secured your supply for that period of time, really drill down into your products and look at the areas where you necessarily need the size to be small and the weight to be light as a unique selling proposition. But if it's not and it's just nice to have, think about alternative ways to magnetize the product. There are older technologies out there like ferrite magnets, for example, which are larger and heavier, but still an opportunity to accommodate that into your product build and then elegantly create more independency in your supply chain. And the third, and I think long-term view, is for everything you cannot really out-engineer of your product, Try to create a balanced supply chain with sources outside. Even if at a higher price point, it will come with a more stable life cycle management of your product, your margins, and your profitability. So I think that is, that is very important, those three steps. Secure your supply for up to a year now with stronger commitments and favorable terms even. Then go into your product design and look at every aspect of that a design piece where it depends on rare earth minerals. Make sure they are requirements and not nice to have. Design it out as much as possible and then balance out your supply chain, even at a higher cost because the higher cost right now is maybe more the natural cost of the product than what the product price out of China is right now, given the non-compliance and environmental issues, for example. Well, despite the fact that you suggest there may be some instances where you could substitute rare earth minerals, I guess we could agree that that won't be the case all around, that rare earths are going to continue to be needed, and that also that while alternative sources are going to pop up outside of China, it doesn't sound like it's going to happen very quickly. And so all of that great advice you just gave to companies, Karai, I think is going to be very valuable for them going forward. So thank you so much, Karai Kuzey, for joining us today to give us some advice on this really thorny problem of access to essential rare earth minerals. Thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity. I know it's a lot. I know it's a dense 
topic, but once we weave out the politics, once we weave out maybe also the outrage and maybe the helplessness, I think you can always come down to true supply chain tactics and operational setups, and that will help you in your journey going forward. So I hope some of my comments were helpful, as you mentioned, Bob, and uh, appreciate the time discussing this with you. That was my conversation with Karai Kose of Gartner, talking about China's near monopoly on rare earth minerals. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.